Welcome to the Murder and Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Summer. Do you remember the year 1996? Many of you were probably very young at that time. Some of you might not have even been born at that time. But in the year 1996, I turned 18. That fall, I started college. And I very vividly remember a movie that came out. A horror movie, of course, because if you've listened to any of the past episodes, you know that I love horror movies. And this was a very well-written horror movie that was a campy slasher film with some humor and lots of twists and turns and a surprise ending. I'm talking about the movie Scream. Now, you've probably seen it by now. It's a very old movie, and you know that there's several other sequels to it. I didn't find any of them to be as good as the first. And then you have the show Scream that I watched on Netflix, and I think it was Netflix. Anyway, one of those streaming services, but it was really a good show. So if you get a chance to watch that, I would watch that too. I think there's two seasons to it, and it was really, really good. But today we're going to talk about the man and his deeds that inspired Kevin Williamson, the screenwriter, who was watching the news and following this story in August of 1990 and see if you can see the movie in this real life story because it's really hard (laughs) to see it. He, Kevin Williamson did a very good job of writing it loosely based on this event because you can't really see the real life events in it. But let's, let's turn our focus to our real life killer, Daniel Harold Rowling, and the unfortunate victims that came across his path, the people that we really want to keep alive in spirit and tell their stories. But let's start with the childhood of Daniel. So Daniel was born on May 26, 1954 in Shreveport, Louisiana. His father, James, was a police officer, and his mother, Claudia, was a housewife. Danny's dad was very abusive. So Danny was always getting physically abused. His brother, his mother was being physically abused. Anytime somebody in the family displeased his father, he would become very physically and emotionally abusive. But Danny seemed to be the main target to James Rowling. James would tell Danny that he was unwanted, that he was horrible, that he was unfit, that he would never amount to anything. He was just a very bad father. Claudia, the mother, was very weak at times, um, she was being physically and emotionally abused herself. And so she was unable to really protect her sons. At one time, uh, she went to the hospital and told them that her husband, 
James tried to make her cut herself with razor blades. She made repeated attempts to leave James, but would always return shortly after. So she would never stay gone for very long. She'd pack up the kids and they would take off and then she would always come back. Possibly because of money. Um, she was a housewife. She didn't have her own money because of that psychological torment, um, that being told over and over that nobody would ever care for, nobody would ever love her, not having support and being a single mother and just really feeling like she had to stay with her husband. Not to mention that her husband was a police officer. And that makes it a little bit harder when, you know, you have somebody with those strings that can make it difficult to leave. You know, they can pull some strings and get her arrested or find her and make her come back. And she just, she was scared of her husband. James had a very cruel sense of discipline. And one time when Danny was a teenager, he pinned him to the ground and handcuffed him and had fellow officers take Danny away because he was embarrassing his father. He also beat the family dog so often the dog died in Danny's arms. So having an abusive childhood and this being in this constant state of turmoil and all of this trauma and stuff, this is breeding grounds for a serial killer. Uh, really, when you look back at a lot of serial killers, they have similar stories. So as a teenager, Danny was arrested many times for robbery and also for peeping on women. He would look through win women's windows. And so he was arrested numerous times. And finally, at the age of 18, he joined the Air Force. This sense of structure and stuff really, it was really helpful for Danny. You know, he, he was disciplined, he was structured, it gave him this stability that he hadn't had. But Danny liked to drink. And then he started using drugs. He was kicked out of the Air Force in 1972 for possession of drugs. So he wasn't in there for very long before he was kicked out. Danny had difficulty simulating to uh, society as he became an adult. At his most stable, shortly after returning from the Air Force after being kicked out, he went to live with his grandmother and was somewhat stable. He held a job. He was an active member of the church and during that time he met a woman, he got married, and he had a little girl but he couldn't sustain the stability for long. And the abusive father started coming out in him. Like he started acting like his father. And this eventually drove his wife away. And she packed up their daughter and left him. At one point, 
uh, Danny was working in a bakery. And this was after his wife had left him. He was in this downward spiral. Things were getting worse and worse. And during this time, he had an accident with a bread slicer and cut off most of one finger. So at that point, he wasn't working. He took to robbing stores and things. He started, you know, robbing places, people to get money, just to get his own money. He was back to living with his parents. This was a very volatile situation. He felt horrible. His dad was still abusive toward him, even though he was an adult. And then in May of 1990, he and his dad got into a fight and Danny tried to kill his dad, but he didn't quite succeed. (laughs) So he and his dad were fighting. He got a gun and pointed it at his dad and shot him in the head, taking out one eye and part of his ear, but he didn't actually kill his dad. This was kind of the beginning of his big spiral, but he had already started spiraling before that. Um, He had started spiraling when he was kicked out of the armed forces, when his wife left him, and definitely when his wife left him was a big step in that direction. But he just really, from the time he lost that stability and that structure in the armed forces, his life just kind of unraveled. After attempting to kill his dad, he fled and went to Gainesville, Florida. It was here that, well, along the way, he actually stopped and robbed a bank. And then he set up, got to Gainesville, he set up this campsite, like tent and everything in these woods close to different apartment complexes. Now, Gainesville, Florida is college town. This is in the fall of 1990. There's all these people who are moving in, and so there's this influx of students, and he's watching these students. He's watching them move into their apartments. He's watching them go about their business and get ready to start their new lives. And with this, he kind of felt maybe that he had lost that ability uh, because of his dad, that this was, that this normalcy was taken from him. But whatever it was that was causing him to feel this anger toward these students, he was watching and he was stalking. On August 24, 1990, Danny broke into an apartment shared by Sonia Larson and Christina Powell. They were 17-year-old freshmen. They were getting ready to embark on this new adventure of adulthood and they came across the path of this killer who followed them, who watched them, and then broke into their apartment that night. Christina was asleep on the couch downstairs and Danny left her sleeping. He had 
decided she was his target. So he left her sleeping and went upstairs and found the bedroom that Sonia was asleep in. He put duct tape over her mouth, used tape to bind her wrists behind her, he raped her, and then he stabbed her to death. He then went downstairs where Christina was. He put tape over her mouth and threatened her with a knife. He cut her clothes off with the knife. He raped her face down on the floor and then stabbed her five times in the back. Once he had killed Christina, he cleaned and posed the bodies in sexually provocative positions. He took a shower and then he left the apartment. On August 25th, 1990, so the next day, or next evening, Danny broke into 18-year-old Krista Hoyt's apartment. She actually worked overnight, so he waited for her to come home, and at 11 o'clock that next morning, she walked into her home where he was waiting, and Danny grabbed her, bound her wrists together behind her back, put a piece of tape over her mouth to gag her, and took her to the bedroom. He cut her clothes off with a knife. He raped her, and then he forced her to turn on her stomach, stabbed her in the back, rupturing her aorta, and then turned her over and cut her from the pubic bone to the breastbone. Danny then left the apartment, and he went back to his campsite, and when he got there, he realized his wallet was missing. So he goes back to the apartment to get his wallet. But once he gets there, he decides to decapitate Krista and he poses her body with her sitting on her bed and her head places her head on a shelf across the room looking at her body. He later said that this was done for shock factor. He wanted to shock people with this act. After Krista's murder, students began to get really scared. I mean, at this point, there's three young women in this college town who have been brutally raped and murdered, and they have no idea who's doing this. So a lot of students withdrew from college and went home, um, left the area. Those that didn't started traveling in packs, sleeping in packs, a bunch of people together. They changed their daily habits so that they, anybody who was watching them, you know, wasn't getting used to a routine because they were changing things up and not going to the same place at the same time, not walking the same routes, really trying to be careful. In August 27th, 1990, Danny set his sights on Tracy Pauls. So Tracy had told a friend earlier that day that she was really scared and didn't want to be home alone, but she had a male roommate, Manny Taboda. I don't know if I said that right, right? Manny Taboda. Anyway, uh, she felt that as long as Manny was there, she would be safe. And so she decided that if Manny got home, 
soon, she would stay in the apartment, but if he didn't get home soon, she was going to leave. Manny came home earlier, and she felt like she was okay to stay the night. Everything was fine because Manny was there. They were together. He would protect her. She just felt more comfortable with somebody else, especially this man in the apartment with her. The thing was, though, that Danny didn't know about Manny. He had watched Tracy and seen her go into the apartment, but while he was preparing and getting everything ready for this kill, he didn't see Manny, the roommate, go in. And I guess maybe he didn't think about this because in so many times that, you know, at so many different times, all these women were living together and they weren't living with these male roommates. So he didn't realize that Manny was there. He breaks into the apartment that night and he finds Manny sleeping in a bedroom. He attacks Manny with a gun and tries to kill him. You know, he's going to take care of him first. But Manny struggles. And in this struggle, there's a lot of noise and Tracy's woken up. Tracy comes running upstairs to see what's going on and she sees Danny in this room. She sees him overpowering Manny, stabbing Manny. You know, Manny's in, Manny's being killed. And so she runs downstairs and barricades herself in her room. So Danny finishes with Manny, kills him, and then goes to Tracy's room where you know, she's barricaded herself in this room, but he easily gets through the barricades and breaks into her room. He wraps her wrist in duct tape, plays duct tape over her mouth, cuts her clothes off with a knife, and rapes her. He then turns her over on her stomach and stabs her three times in the back. When she's dead, he poses her body. At this point, you know, after this, Two suspects were named, and police starts pursuing them as leads. They look at these two suspects, and one of them they ruled out. The other one they actually kept, like, for a couple of days they were really focused on. He lived in the same apartment complex that Tracy and Manny lived in, and he was known to be very volatile. And so they kind of honed in on him, but then they find that he wasn't the killer either. During this time, police are alerted, police in Louisiana alert the Florida police that they have a similar unsolved murder that kind of looks like these murders. So this murder happened in November, 1989 in Shreveport, Louisiana. So you remember that Danny lived in Shreveport. He's from Shreveport. And in 1989 was about that time after Danny's wife had left and he finds himself back at his parents' house. He's working in this bakery. His life is starting to really unravel. And in November, 1989, he had become obsessed with a woman named Julie Grissom. So he follows her, he stalks her, and he's watching her through her window 
where at her home where he sees her with William Grissom, who is her dad, and Sean is Sean, her son, her eight-year-old son. So he's watching this picture of this happy family and watching them get ready for dinner and all these things are going on. And I guess maybe that's what made him decide to kill them. Whatever it was, he snapped, he broke into the house, and he killed all three family members, including the eight-year-old boy. Evidence at the scene showed tape residue on the victims. The bodies were cleaned in vinegar, which was also used for the Gainesville victims. And type B blood was found at the scene, and that was what thought to have been the killer's blood. Evidence of this matched the victim's homes in Florida. You know, you had the tape that was used, you had the vinegar that was used to clean up, and there was type B blood found in these victims' homes. So they think, okay, this is really, really similar. Maybe this is the first murders. And so they have these, they kind of link these murders together. In November 1990, Cindy Jurex, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but of Shreveport, Louisiana, had been watching the news. And she had been kind of following these murders. She had thought early on, like in August, when these murders were happening, something in her made her think of Danny. Danny Rowland, a guy that she had met at church and had become really good friends with her and her then husband, Stephen. Danny hung out with them all the time, was at their house almost every night. And then he'd made these comments that made them kind of uncomfortable. Then he disappeared. And when he disappeared, when he left, and these murders started happening, he had made a comment to her about he wanted to go where it was sunny and he could just lay on the beach and watch the pretty women. And then these murders start happening happening in Gainesville. She thought of him, but she kind of put it out of her mind. Yeah, he was odd. He said these really odd things. They were very uncomfortable with him. But she she didn't want to put two and two together. She didn't want to really think that this guy that had been in her home and that she had considered kind of a friend was also this murderer. But then they heard about the, the connection between the Gainesville murders and this murder in Shreveport, Louisiana. And it was just so much. And not only that, a comment by her then husband really made it to where she could not get Danny out of her mind. She was just so sure that he was the one doing this. Her husband, Stephen, had told her at one point that Danny had a problem. And he had told him that he had this problem. He liked to stick knives into people. And this and all the other stuff, it just, she just decided she couldn't stop thinking about it. She had to call the police. 
So she calls Crime Stoppers tip hotline and tells them that they should look at this guy that she had known named Danny Rowland. Well, Danny hadn't come up on their radar, but at this point, he was actually being held in Marion County Jail, which was just 40 miles south of Gainesville. He had been arrested for robbing a supermarket in Ocala. Uh, This was 10 days after the murder of Tracy Pauls and Manny Tabata. So he was in Florida, just 40 miles south. It was already in jail. And so they had decided to go ahead and look at him. The thing is, before before she made this call anyway, they had found out, they had realized that they had this blood match and there was a witness that said that they had seen somebody at the bank during the bank robbery that was missing part of a finger. And then it also had come up on some of the tape that was found that there was one fingerprint missing in these fingerprints that they were able to pull off the tape where somebody was, you know, where they were handling the tape. One fingerprint was missing. They kind of put the two together that maybe this bank robber who was missing a finger and maybe this murderer was the same person, but they weren't sure. Uh, They also started thinking that maybe this person had been jailed. I mean, if this person had robbed a bank and then had committed these murders, maybe this person had been caught doing something else and was sitting in a jail somewhere and they had DNA evidence you know they had the blood so they decided to start doing testing on inmates in this certain radius to see if maybe one of these inmates was matched to these crimes but before they got there before they started doing this testing And, of course, Danny would have been tested because he fell within this radius in this jail. Uh, Before they could do that, they got this tip and they got this name. And when they got this name, they realized, okay, this guy was in this jail. He was not far away. And when they went in to talk to him, they found he had type B blood and he was missing a finger. They also found a tool that had been in his possession when he was arrested that left markings that matched those of some of the murder scenes. It was the tool that was used to break into the sliding glass doors in these different apartments, and it left the same markings. They also found a cassette player. Well, they had been chasing two men during the time of these murders and it was right after um, Tracy and Manny's murder. They chased these two men, had seen these two men going into the woods, had chased them into the woods, had caught one suspect, but the other one got away. Turns out later that that person was Danny, 
But at the time, around the area that these men went to, there was a tent and like a campsite set up. And at this campsite, they had collected these cassette tapes that hadn't been analyzed yet because they really, when they caught the the, the person, uh, he was like a drug dealer and they didn't, and the guy said that he was going to meet somebody that he kind of knew that was buying drugs off of him. So they looked at it as a drug deal, just a homeless man, vagrant, was buying drugs they didn't really put the two together at that point but they had all of the evidence they'd taken this evidence from this campsite and when they got the cassette player and they knew that Danny had been in that in the Gainesville area they went ahead they started they put priority on these they played these tapes and what they found was an audio diary alluding to these crimes not dictating these crimes straight out but alluding to these crimes so in november 1991 danny was arrested and charged with several counts of murder which he was later found guilty of the murders of of the murders of krista hoyt Sonia Larson, Christina Powell, Tracy Pauls, Manny Tabata, and then of the 1989 murders of William Grissom, Julie Grissom, and Sean. So Danny was arrested um, in 1990, April 1994. His trial started, and during the course of this trial, it was revealed that Danny was diagnosed with anti-personality disorder, anti-social personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and paraphilia, which is sexual arousal by unusual objects, situations, or fantasies. Situations such as breaking into homes, raping, murdering, and then posing these bodies, you know? He was executed by a lethal injection on October 24th, 2006. It was during this time, during the time of these news broadcasts and this trial, that Kevin Williamson saw this stuff unfolding, was introduced to Danny Rowland, and he was inspired to write the movie Scream. It is also very interesting to note that when Rowling was arrested, after he had admitted to all these murders, he said that the reason he did these was he wanted to be a superstar, similar to Ted Bundy. So he wanted to finally do something right and do something worthwhile, at least in his father's eyes. So that is the story of Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper, and the inspiration for the movie Scream. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, bye.